Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. If you are a Green Bay Packers fan from the glory years, just another just another bad day as another one of the players from those legendary teams pass away. Paul Horning, the Golden Boy, Heisman Trophy winner and um, all-pro player from Green Bay, passed away. I believe he was 84. They're listing the cause as dementia. But this this makes the fourth Packers player from the, the Lombardi era um, passed away this year. Willie Wood, Willie Davis, Herb Adderley a couple weeks ago, and now Paul Horning. And, of course, last year, 2019, we lost Bart Starr, we lost Zeke Bretkowski, and we lost uh, Jim Taylor. So the time is, is catching up with the players. Uh, again, it was interesting. I was talking to a couple people this morning, and they really – they were kind of familiar with the name Paul Horning, but yeah, he, he was a he was a player for Lombardi and stuff, but just really didn't remember. And I I mean I understand it's that's what happens as time marches on, and uh, that was the glory days, the Lombardi glory days were a long time ago for lots of people. But there's no question that Paul Horning was just an incredible, incredible player who had a interesting sort of life and was a bit controversial um, from time to time, but nevertheless, just a great Packers player, and uh, he has passed away at the age of, I believe, 84. Uh, Sail on. Uh, Update to something that we've been talking about repeatedly, and this is just, it's another thing that you put in the category of give people credit for trying, but you always knew it was going to be a long shot. During our our WTMJ 2021 broadcast about a month or so ago, one of the people I interviewed in our entertainment section was uh, Milwaukee comedian John McGivern, who's, I I think, best known for the stuff that he does on on PBS, but also, you know, his his one-person stage show. And when John and I were talking, I mean, he, he was discussing how difficult this year has been for performers, you know, people who make their living going out and about and entertaining people and doing stage shows and things of the like, where all of a sudden, all that stuff just comes to an end. And one of the things that they were very, very excited about is is John McGivern, who almost every year does a a holiday show uh, based on remembrances of growing up in Milwaukee. What they were going to do is do a, uh, a socially distanced version of the holiday show at the Paps Theater. And and what they were going to do is limit the capacity to 250 people in the 1,300-seat theater. Guests would have been required to wear masks throughout the show. Parties would have been seated at least six feet apart. But the idea was to try to get to some semblance of of normalcy as we deal with the pandemic. Well, um, that was originally supposed to be in November and December. They've announced today that given the explosion of COVID cases, that show has now been uh, postponed. Uh, they're hoping that they can run it from February 26th to March 21st instead. So it's been put back November, December, January, February. It's been put back a few months in the hope that, you know, we'll get through the worst of the pandemic. But for people who were looking forward to going to that show, and I, I count myself as one of those people, um, not going to happen, at least not going to happen in November and December. Who knows what February is going to look like? All right. Lots of ground to cover on today's program. Let's get started. I know I have disappointed some of you over the course of the last week. I'm a big enough guy to admit that because I I hear from you. 
And I know that some of you are disappointed in me because I refuse to drink the election fraud Kool-Aid. I, I understand that there are people out there who are absolutely, totally, 110% convinced that President Trump actually won re-election. And this election was stolen from him because of this or that or, or the other thing. And, and it's all kind of across the map. And I, I always try to explain that, uh, candidly, something that you perceive as not being necessarily the best practice doesn't equate to fraud. And I'll, I'll give you a big example of that. In, in Dane County, in Madison, uh, what they did is they set up this thing called Democracy in the Park. And what they would do is for a couple Saturdays, they would have representatives from the clerk's office who would set up at, at tables in, in the park. And people who had already received absentee ballots could drop those ballots off with representatives from the clerk's office in, in the park. All right. So instead of putting a stamp on the ballot and sending it back or walking it to City Hall or putting it in one of those ballot collection bins, you could show up at the park and, and you could give the ballot to a representative from the clerk's office who was, was sitting there. They weren't giving you new ballots. They were just collecting them. And there was a huge controversy about this. And I know some people, not the Republican Party, but some independent people said, we, we think this is illegal, that you're not allowed to, to do that. You should make them have to drop the ballots off. And there was a lawsuit that was filed and ended up going nowhere. It's an open question, I think, under state law as to whether or not you, you can do that. But at the end of the day, as I try to explain to people, just because... Is it the best practice to allow people to hand their ballots to a representative from the clerk's office who might be in the park so it's easier for that person to, again, turn in their ballot than as opposed to making them go to City Hall? Okay, well, I guess reasonable people can argue about whether that's the best practice or not. But as I explained, that's a far cry from fraud unless you're going to be able to establish, for example, that – uh, of of the hundreds or thousands of people who might have dropped off their ballots, that they were dropping off somebody else's ballot I, again, because if it's if it's your ballot, and you decide that you're going to return it to a representative from the clerk's office on a Saturday in in the park at an official event, as opposed to walking to city hall and dropping it off or putting it in the mail, I, again, I. I I have a difficult time seeing how that is fraud unless you can, in fact, prove, for example, that thousands of people who weren't otherwise entitled to vote, you know, dropped off their ballots in that fashion. So it's things like that. But I want to have a a candid discussion to start off the program on Friday. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think you can always find either election irregularities or things that people want to put in a sinister light. For example, in Milwaukee, um, after they they did the, their ballot collection totals, all right, it, late at night, got the ballot collection totals, and what happens is one of the representatives from the, the clerk's office gets a bunch of the flash drives 
uh, that, that have all the numbers on them and is driving from wherever they were counting them to wherever they're going to download the, the flash drive. Apparently, they left one of the flash drives behind. Now, it, it was always, you know, under control. It was always locked up. There were always people back. It's just that she forgot the one flash drive. It was never, like, in the general public. Goes back, picks up the flash drive, and I'm reading things saying, oh, that, that somebody could have tampered with that flash drive and added thousands of Biden votes or whatever w- without any sort of evidence to that effect. So it, is that not a best practice should she have forgotten the one flash drive sure of course it should have gone they should have had them all together but that's different than saying okay this this is fraud so let's tee this up 855-616-1620 that's the acunate mortgage talk and text line and you can weigh in on either side of this i'm sorry and i understand it disappoints some of you and i know some people would like to have me railing about how this election was stolen but at the same time if there's ever an election that really is stolen I, I want to have some credibility when I point out why I think that's happened. And at least at this point, I'm not seeing it. And candidly, as we get further and further away from the election, I, I don't think that there's going to be any rational evidence that this, in fact, has occurred. But was this election stolen? Yes or no? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. We discuss. Back to take your calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. As I said, I look. I I understand. There's some people out there who would love to listen to the show and have me kicking and screaming, and say this election's stolen. You know, we Trump needs to stay, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm just saying I don't see any realistic evidence of that. And if there ever is an election that's stolen, I want to have some credibility when I come on and tell you why that is. Just saying all the different things that I'm seeing out here are examples of maybe not best practices. You can argue about should the clerk's office in Madison be able to set up in the park and allow people to return absentee ballots there. Okay, but to me, that's not fraud. I mean, it, now, now, if you have people that are returning thousands of ballots that don't belong to them, that's a different story. But if the issue is, gee, I'm returning my ballot to somebody, sit, uh, representative of the clerk's office who's sitting in the park, as opposed to putting it in a drop box, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to have trouble being convinced that that's fraud. All right, let's start with Jim in Sheboygan. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Uh, Jeff, thanks for taking my call. I I would agree with you that I don't think there was a fraudulent election. One curiosity, though, I had, and I I wonder if it feeds into this, is as I was kind of watching what I'd call real-time reporting, there was very often states that were reporting, as an example, 80% of the presidential ballots counted, but when you looked at the Senate, they were they would report only 60%. Since those are both statewide uh, elections, it seemed odd that you could have 80% of the presidential ballots counted, but only 60% of the Senate. Do you know why that could be? I, I, thanks for No, I actually don't. And, and I guess I, I didn't see that. I was watching in Wisconsin, so I, I didn't see that in, in other places. And I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was a delay in reporting by the clerk's office or a delay in, in the, the media. I, I just, I'm not sure, but I, I, I don't know the question. I guess, I mean, the, the one thing we hear in Wisconsin a lot is people think it is suspicious that late at night, all of a sudden you have this 100,000 votes out of Milwaukee appears. But we, we, I, now that's what I go with, with not best practices. I think that's a bad thing. 
for democracy in general. But we know why that happens. It happens because right now the state law says you can't start counting absentee ballots until the polls open on election day. And so as a result, what Milwaukee does is they take all the absentee ballots and they put them in a separate area, and then they start the process of counting them after the rest of the polls have closed, which is why you get these huge numbers. And, of course, Milwaukee skews heavily Democrats. So that's just the way it works. I don't think that's the best practice. It's why for the last several months I have been arguing strongly that in advance of the next statewide election for sure in in 2022, we need to change the law to make it bring it in conformity with the majority of states and allow clerks to start uh, entering tabulating the, the ballots the absentee ballots as they are arrived. I'm not talking about releasing the results, but I'm talking about opening the envelopes, verifying that the person who sent this in has dotted their um, I's and crossed their T's, and then feed the ballot into the machine so that when the polls open on election day, you know, you, you have that information that's already been entered. So maybe by 10 o'clock, instead of four in the morning, you can get an accurate reading of, of where the election is. That to me would be a better practice. But again, and I, I don't see that as an example of of fraud. Let's talk to Jeff in West Dallas. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying there. But I think a lot of people don't realize that with these mail-in ballots, we had millions and millions of people vote that normally wouldn't vote if they didn't, you know, by yep. absentee and in-person uh, voting. So people are suspecting fraud because of the mail-in ballot, because of the ease of the vote. We had millions of people more vote. You know, and that's yeah. what happened in this election. Yeah, I mean, and the media, all the hype before the election was crazy. How the postal service was going to cheat? There was going to be voter suppression, and then Trump saying that it's going to be a bunch of fraud. So you know, the media and the Democrat Party and the Republican Party before the election didn't help this. No, I no, I I, thanks, I, I, I agree, and and I, I will say this: I, I don't think. I don't think the president helped by some of these things about, oh, I'm not sure it's going to be a legitimate election or not. Now, look, I I understand that there's there's a huge possibility for problems that come with mail-in in ballots, but but you, you got to show it to me. And at least thus far, and let's just talk about Wisconsin in particular, I, I'm not seeing any of this evidence that says, all right, all, all these people who weren't entitled to vote, voted. Now, again, I want to talk about best practice. I understand that there's an issue out there where some election clerks who got the absentee ballots and the, the witness information, like the witness had signed it, um, saying that they'd seen the person vote, but they, they hadn't filled in their address. Well, okay, I, I understand that in some cases, like the clerks, then went ahead, if they verified that the witness did exist, they filled in the address. All right, it, to me, that's not necessarily the best practice, but the law is very unclear at best as to whether you can do that or not. And to me, when we're talking about fraud, what has to happen is there has to be a showing that, all right, there, there were actually convinced me that you had thousands and thousands of people who weren't entitled to vote who actually voted. I, I don't – it bothers me, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, that we would be actively searching and trying to find um, – I, I, I don't know, trying to find excuses to toss out 
otherwise legitimate votes, as opposed to, hey, you know, somebody uh, got the name of some dead person and, and they voted twice or they voted three times. Is it possible that that happened? Yeah, I think it's it's possible. Did it happen in any sort of mass numbers? I, I just haven't seen any evidence of of that. And that's not to say that we don't need to learn some stuff you know, moving forward and figure out how we can do it better. The best example of that is Florida. Florida in 2000 was an absolute and total mess. Just a you-know-what show. But they got their act together, and Florida, you know, they got the numbers in on time. There was regular reporting. Nobody is alleging irregularities. Let's talk to Tony in Sheboygan Falls. Hi, Tony. Hey, uh, good morning, Jeff. Hi, Tony. Uh, I, I'm going to say I... I agree with both of your last statements. Uh, first of all, uh, your, your statement about making it easier for the clerks to count. I, I think that's definitely sure. something we have to work on doing. I mean, yeah. no question. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Tony. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you make your second point. But whenever I say that, then, then people say, well, you know, you, you shouldn't be releasing the results. Well, I, I'm not arguing you, should re- you shouldn't release the results as to who's ahead. All you do is you feed it into the machine so it's there, so... Then, you know, at the end of the night, you can punch the button and you get the total as opposed to having to wait till the polls close and then start opening the envelopes. I'm not saying release the totals early. I'm just saying feed them into the machines and then so you can hit that button at eight o'clock or whatever. Correct. Absolutely. And and as far as these other things, why why would in any way making it easier for more people to vote? Why would that be a bad thing? Why does anybody think that's a bad thing? And I can tell you why, uh, because if you look at some of the facts, um, we haven't had a Republican president win the popular vote since Reagan. Okay, and, you know, we have gerrymandering of districts. And I think you have the party looking at things and realizing that they have a problem winning uh, with numbers. And, of course, anything they can do to suppress votes yeah. is going to be in their favor. Well, see, and, here, and that's well, Tony, here's where I mean, here, here's where I disagree with you on on that. I mean, I, this whole idea that the Republicans are all trying to suppress votes. No, I, I, I don't I don't buy that. I think there's a balancing that you have to have between making it easy for people to vote and at the same time, making sure that there is integrity in the election process. And there's a balancing. I have no problems with photo ID. I, I don't think photo ID, I don't think it is unreasonable to ask people to prove who they are before they cast a vote. I, I think that's a, a small sort of burden to, to put on people. And so, I mean, I've been listening for years. Oh, that's efforts to suppress people. No, that that's an effort to try to preserve some integrity in the system. There has to be this balancing between the two. So I, I don't buy that, oh, it's this big GOP scheme to try to steal elections. You need to have a balancing, and I, I think we should all agree that we need to find whatever the best practices are. I'm just here to tell you that for, for everybody that says, I think this election was stolen, and you, you go down some of these into some of these rabbit holes, I, I'm just saying, so far, you've got the cadres of lawyers who've been looking for this, and, and nobody can come up with any solid evidence of that other than some sort of speculation about this or that or the other thing. And again, I just don't think it's good for democracy, regardless of who ends up winning? The other comment I would make is, if this was stolen somehow to try to thwart the efforts of the re-election of Donald Trump, why did why did Republicans do so well in so many other races? I mean, if if, if it seems to me if you're going to try to steal an election, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you're not just going to try to steal the presidency; you're going to try to steal the Senate seat or Congress or whatever. 
Just saying. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Veterans Day honors the incredible sacrifices made by our brave men and women who served in the United States military. This week, we recognize all Americans who fought for us. Thank you and happy Veterans Week from all of us at News Radio 620 WTMJ and Tayback Laws Veterans Benefits Center. Hey, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. Couple new postings. There is in of an all places. There's a huge story in today's New York Times, which talks about how political polling is just garbage. Now, that might be an oversimplification, but it's a huge story that acknowledges that polling, once again, just does not work. And that whether you're trying to rely on it, if you're a candidate or if you're somebody trying to judge the state of the race, you, you might as well give it up because it's just no good. Um, I got a link to the story. If you believe polls, Ron Johnson would have lost twice. President Trump would have lost, um, I say once, actually, <laughs> he would have believed he would have lost twice. And Susan Collins, that's the senator from Maine. You know, Susan Collins, in all the pre-election polls in Maine, she was never, Never shown as being ahead. That was uh, that was a race that everybody, at least all the pundits, thought, oh, she's going to get crushed. She won handily. Tom Tillis, he was the uh, senator reelected from North Carolina. He never was ahead in the polls. Joni Ernst, she was the senator from Iowa, who up until, with the exception, I think, of one poll, was shown being behind the whole race as well, among others. Um, all those people, if you believe the polls, would be cleaning out their offices instead of getting set for new secure terms. And I, as I promised you before, I won't be fooled again. But here's, see, here, here's the bigger problem with with polls, and it's why this is such a story. It's that polls become self-fulfilling prophecies. And it's interesting that the results of the polls almost always skew to benefit the Democrats. And, and maybe that's because Democrats are more likely to participate with pollers, pollsters, or they're easier to find or, or whatever. But it almost always benefits the Democrats. Now, here's why that is insidious. It's because this, people make decisions based on, on the polls, and that's why they become what I say is self-fulfilling prophecies. If you, um, <clears throat> if you are in a situation where you're, you're a candidate, for example, that, that's running, and you're trying to raise money for a last-minute TV buy or something like that, and you get a poll that comes out that says you're 11 points down, good luck trying to get money from people in the last two weeks because people are going to say you're going to lose, so we're not going to give you money. When, in fact, the truth is maybe it's a neck-and-neck -neck race, and maybe that money would have made a difference. I'll give you a real-world example. The polls, both internal and external. Remember in Wisconsin, we had that crazy poll came out that showed Biden ahead by 17 points. Remember that poll? Oh, like a week before the election. Now, I think almost everybody except a couple people who were listening to my show and wanted to drink the Kool-Aid, you know, recognize that that was a garbage sort of poll. But I am told that the internal polls that the Trump campaign had showed the numbers relatively similar to what the last Marquette Law School poll had, which was Trump down five or six points. All right, now we know that that was wrong. We know it was wrong. But what happened is I'm told that the Trump campaign made some decisions with regard to advertising based on some of these polls. Okay, we've got these polls that show that we're behind by five points here. 
uh, we probably can't turn it around, so let's take that money and let's put it into another state where it's a, it's a toss-up. Well, the risk is, all right, you know, who knows? If the polls would have accurately reflected how close Wisconsin was, maybe, now President Trump was here four times in the last week, and, and I don't want to get too much into the what-ifs, but, you know, maybe they would have decided, hey, we're... We're going to spend even more money on trying to do advertising or whatever, and maybe in a race that's decided by I don't know twenty thousand votes out of three point you know however many million that are cast or you know maybe that's the thing where that that could have changed stuff around. But you make this decision based on these bogus polls. Anyways, it's a really good story if you want to see it, and it's why. It's why I, th- I think we all just collectively need to say, okay, next time there's a poll come out, it comes out. It just let let's. It, it's not worth the paper that it ends up being printed on. So when the Marquette University Law School poll comes out and says, Tony Evers has got an approval rate of 52%, yeah, right. I mean, might be 60%, might be 52 might just as easily be 40 You can't trust them because they don't know how to do it right anymore. The other piece, and this is sort of interesting, I happen to believe that in my lifetime, Ronald Reagan was the greatest American president in my lifetime. Now, lefties hate, or at least some lefties, hate, and that is exactly the word, hate Ronald Reagan, and just really don't like the fact that his legacy is is an extremely positive one. Well, Showtime, who owns Showtime? I think CBS does. Showtime will roll out, and they did this with Fox News, they they do it regularly with their documentaries. Showtime has this habit. The first conservative-leaning documentary that they come out with will be, the next one that they come out will be the first one. So they've got a hatchet piece, apparently, that's going to start airing about President Reagan starting on on Sunday. Um, The New York Times review of it, and I haven't seen it yet, the first episode comes out on Sunday, says the premise is that he has been treated far too well by history. Far too well by history. How dare people look back on the term of Ronald Reagan and think he did a good job? To which my response was, heavy sigh, don't worry, I promise I will watch this documentary and report back to you so you don't have to. But yet another hatchet job coming by Showtime, this time going after President Reagan. Okay, when we come back, some people think Joe Biden could do it by executive decree. I'm not sure that's the case, but would it be a good idea? I will explain. We will discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I teased this at the uh, start of the show, and I got an email from somebody saying, Jeff, this is the reason that one of my daughter's friends voted for Joe Biden. She's hoping her student loans get canceled. All right, big story out today. Now, Elizabeth Warren, of course, you know, Elizabeth Warren, who who ran unsuccessfully for president, but it may be in line for a cabinet spot. One of the big things that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have been pushing is forgiveness of student loans, which would mean, let, let's understand this, it would mean that, yes, you, you would take the burden of the student loans away from the people who took the loans and got the benefits, but you would pass it on to all the rest of the people who would have to pay additional taxes to make up for it. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, there are right now about $1.5 trillion dollars in federal student loan. It's the second largest category of consumer debt behind only mortgage debt. 
All right. Um, there are approximately 43 million student loan borrowers in the U.S. 60% owe $20,000 or less. 25% owe $40,000 or more. So again, let, let's six out of every 10 student loan borrowers owe, owe 20 grand or less. So that, that's not, that, that's not a, a small number, but at the same time, it, it's also not this number that, oh my gosh, they owe $2 million. They'll never be able to pay it off. All right. Um, Borrowers who graduated with bachelor's degrees in 2018 left school owing an average of about $29,000. So that, that that's an average. Some people owe more. Some people owe less. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are pushing hard for Biden to try to find a way to cancel that debt. Uh, essentially, just say, we're going to forgive it. We're going to forget about it. Now, Biden hasn't been willing to go that far, but clearly this is an idea that has some appeal, at least, to, I mean, lots of people. Look, I, I understand it. If I, had a, if I had a debt and I was expected to repay it, and repaying it meant that I had less money to, I don't know, go out to eat with or pay my cell phone bill with or go on vacation, I, I'd, I'd love to have that, that free lunch, but... I'm the one that made the decision to borrow the money in the first place. So is it unreasonable to expect me to pay it back? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, let, let's, let us tee this up. Should we forgive federal student loans? And the argument in front of it, in favor of it, would be, well, if you, if instead of having to make I don't know, a $300 a month loan payment. And that's about what the average is. The average loan payment, let me see, I've got it right here. Um, uh, the average student loan, typical monthly student loan payment is, is a, between $150 and $200. So the argument is, instead of having to pay $200 a month back on your student loan, the economy would be much better off if you'd have that $200 to be able to spend on something else. That, that's the argument in favor of this. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess my question, and I ask this rhetorically, is why, why do we stop with student loans? I mean, how about mortgages? I mean, if, if, if you got a mortgage, my guess is if you didn't have to make that mortgage payment, there's all sorts of things that you could spend money on. So, I mean, why, why, why not? How about that car loan that you've got? Well, if, if you didn't have to make that car payment every month, my gosh, think of all the extra money that you might have to be able to spend. So why shouldn't the taxpayers pay for that? Why shouldn't the taxpayers pay for your car? All right, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, why should I have to pay for somebody else's debt? Nobody pays off my credit cards or mortgages. Well, um, yeah, that's that. That's kind of it. And for all those of you who put yourself through college by, well, I don't know, by by working, um, maybe you delayed college for a couple years, etc. Or you you worked and you had the student loans and you paid them off. Yeah, I mean, I I understand. I mean, is that going to be rebated? I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I paid off. My law school loans a long, long time ago, but hey, you know, should should I be entitled to claim those? 855-616-1620. Gru is lining up the calls we discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, absolutely not. We paid for our daughter's college. We're not paying for total strangers. Don't borrow money if you can't 
pay it back. Jeff, no one is forced to take out loans. I joined the military to pay for college. Why does anyone think they're entitled to have these loans forgiven? If they didn't want to pay them back, they shouldn't have signed on the dotted line in the first place. Jeff, nothing is free. We have two daughters, both with student loans. Both are paying interest rates in the area of 6.9%. Both car loans and mortgage loans are nowhere near that interest rate. Make these loans more affordable by lowering the interest rate, but these loans should not be outright forgiven. Now, see, that, I think, is an interesting question, especially a lot of the private loans are at a, at what I think we could argue is a much larger than market interest rate. Now, that's something I think if you came out and you wanted to have that discussion, should people be allowed to refinance at, at lower interest rates and should taxpayers help them? That's at least the discussion that I'm willing to have. But the idea that we're just going to suddenly let $1.5 trillion in, in debt just be passed on to everybody else, including all the rest of us who took out student loans and who paid for them. Okay, let's start with Jeff in Brookfield. Jeff, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? I appreciate your show. I listen all the time. I really love it. Thank you. I appreciate Uh, that. You kind of stole my thunder there right before my call. (laughs) Okay. Great minds think alike. Yeah. I went (laughs) to school from 91 to 99, have a doctoral degree in physical therapy, and have about 120000 of student loan debt. And when I was you needed to consolidate after your schooling, otherwise you couldn't pay for all those individual loans at one time. And the consolidated rate I got was 7.875. And unfortunately, there's no way to reconsolidate those loans. And so for the past, you know, let's see, 30, you know, 25, 30 years here, uh, mortgage rates have been in the two and three area. And I could not uh, afford the large student loan interest. And I don't blame the companies that are, providing these student loans, I blame the universities for raising their tuitions because they could, because they knew all those loans were available at the time. And that that was the frustrating part for me. Uh, You want to to get higher educated people. And unfortunately for me, when I got out of school in 1999, the Balanced Budget Act happened for healthcare and killed all therapeutic services. There were a ton of qualified people out in the marketplace and I had a doctoral degree which was new to the field right and couldn't couldn't get a job so I have never even been in the profession <laughs> so <laughs> and, are you are you still uh, paying on that student loan are you still paying off your, oh, yes, your yes, okay. yes yes and will be forever yes. probably and, well and it's unfortunate because you get out of school and if you have a you know seven eight hundred dollars student loan and you're not even really getting into the principle of that loan yeah it's a pretty frustrating situation to think about long term when you're yeah. just tr- trying to get, you know, pay yeah. for daycare for your kids and things like that. So I think it's really the education system. I don't think it's the banks that are the problem. Well, and I, and I think, uh, you know, it and would Jeff, be nice if there was some. Sorry, yeah. No, no. Thanks. For calling. No, and I, I think, like I say, if we were talking about trying to figure out ways to help people who have loans um, read re take out those loans or redo them at some sort of lower rate i, I at least I'm, I'm willing to i'm open to that discussion because i think that's sort of a fair commentary but like you say i mean it's i also by the way agree exactly with what you said about the colleges and universities i have a text here from dick who writes student loans are the crack cocaine of higher education Kids took out student loans to get degrees that provided them with little or no financial benefit when they entered the workplace see that that's 
I mean, in, in the broadest sense, that that's true. Because what happened is, you know, colleges would would continue to up their fees. Okay, this is we're going to charge more and more for tuition, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they never had to worry about it because, okay, the, the students could get the loans without understanding that there was going to be a day of reckoning at some point in time. And look, everybody thinks that, hey, I'm going to go into this particular field and I'm going to graduate and I'm going to have this giant, this great job that's waiting for me and I'm going to be rolling in money. And does that happen occasionally? Yeah, but not that often. So the college and the university I agree were incredibly irresponsible. I always use that example with law schools. I mean, I would I mean, the, the market, I don't know exactly today, but I know for the longest time, the job market for lawyers was absolutely terrible. Now, if you graduated from a good school at the top of your class, yeah, you were going to get a good job. But a lot of people, a lot of people graduated from law school and they weren't able to find jobs, not even jobs as lawyers, or if they found jobs for lawyers as lawyers, it, it wasn't paying anywhere what they thought that they were going to be making. And you've got these huge student loans. But the law schools, all they cared about was, here, let, let's get the people in and let's Let's turn this into we've got the students, so we're going to have the money. And so that's led to some of this. And so I I understand that there's a lot of blame to go around. The idea, though, of just saying we're going to have the taxpayers pick up one point five trillion dollars in debt to to me, it's got to be a complete and total non starter period. Back with more in just a minute. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. All right, so Eric Bilstadt, help me out with this one. During your newscast, you were telling us the, the story about the, this this restaurant in, in Kansasville, which is Union Grove, that was planning a, a unsanctioned, we were calling it a rogue, um, a, a rogue party homecoming dance um, for Union High Union Grove High School seniors, mm-hmm. right? That, that's yep. the deal. So, what, what's the story? It's now been delayed temporarily. Well, they it, they had canceled their annual homecoming dance last month, of course. But a local business wants to do one anyway. Hey, let's have this right, here. Right, right. Yeah, and, and there's pushback from administrators saying, eh, "I really wouldn't like you not to do this rogue homecoming." Right. And, so, oh, oh, well, I, so, the, so they're trying to put one on themselves, and the uh, the district is hoping that they don't do that. Right. Okay. Well, I'm looking at the advertisement for this right now, and here's the way it's it's billed. The restaurant invites the Union Grove High School freshman through senior class to a homecoming dance. Tickets are twenty dollars, must be purchased in advance, and it gives the address. Tickets include admission into the hall, a DJ spinning all spinning all the favorites. S p i n n i n apostrophe all their favorites. Magician Ryan Martin for some fun entertainment, unlimited soda and juice with a pizza buffet supplied by so-and-so. Must be 18 years of age or younger, ID required. Parents are welcome to hang out in the bar restaurant area during the dance. Um, the high school, Union Grove High School, is not sponsoring or affiliated with this event. This is an event hosted by the eatery. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm looking at that. Yeah. All right. Who in their right mind, seriously, would think that this would be a good idea? I, I It just... Look, I, I I get beaten up on this program because I, I try to advocate a, a reasonable position between the folks that are out there that think, hey, it's the wild, wild west, let's do everything, versus the folks that say we need to shut down the whole world and we all need to stay in our basements for the next six months. So, so I understand there's people on both sides, and I, I try to be in the middle on this. We know, we know that 
the, the things that are, are most likely spread COVID-19 are it, it's it's bars and restaurants when people have been drinking and, you know, kind of forget about all the other stuff that mm-hmm. they're supposed to do. And it's large gatherings, weddings and funerals and homecoming dances. Right. Yes. Yes. <sighs> all right. You're, you're, you're a parent. Would you let your kids go to something like this? Uh, unfortunately, no, I would not let my kids go. Well, I, I don't think that's fortunate. Of course not. I mean, no, no. if they would want to go, I would. Right, not right. Them. And would you go? Okay, so would you? And then the the parents all oh, come and sit in our bar and hang out, you know, while the kids are at the dance. It's to me, it's just it. It's just one of these staggeringly bad ideas. All right, your spot. Oh, I want well, to talk. No, it, no. because it, it's it. What it makes it reminds me of just the other day. Um, I think it was Franklin had an issue with their high school's um, football team, where the the parents were upset that the football team would right. no longer be playing. Right. And I think sometimes, and I'm seeing this now. My oldest is 14. He's not in high school yet. Um, I think sometimes parents either live vicariously through their kids or want nothing but the best and most awesome thing for their kids at all times. So they get caught up in this idea that, no, this still has to happen. They have to enjoy a homecoming dance because that's what always happens. And I think that's what happens in cases like this. Obviously, it's the business offering this. Right. But I, I think sometimes parents think, well, you know what? You're only 15 months, and little Johnny needs to take little Julie to the dance. And this well, is what has yeah, to and then everybody's going to get sick. You're going to have 150 people <laughs> well, show up, and they're all going to get sick, and then they're going to go home, and they're going to give it to mom and dad, and grandpa and grandpa, grandma. All right, eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, look, I try again. I, I, I know I frustrate you. From time to time, because I, I try to take what I consider to be a reasonable, moderate approach to how we do things with in, in the COVID world. I'm not one of these people who thinks that you can lock down the entire economy. I think it has to be smart. I think it has to be surgical. I don't think we can go out and say to hairdressers or to, um, again, the, the small jewelry store salesman, you, you can't open up anymore unless we have evidence saying that, okay, that's responsible for the spread of COVID. And we don't. But like the governor of Minnesota has said, all right, they said, no, we've traced. We know where 70% of our COVID cases start. That they have, they have the data. Unfortunately, we don't hear the data in Wisconsin, but they got the data. They say it, it's bars after like nine o'clock when people have been drinking and, you know, they, they kind of throw caution to the wind and it's like large gatherings. And so, yeah, we're going to roll those back. Well, to me, th- this is just it, it's a, a complete and total, I guess, no brainer. I mean, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. A- apart from whether or not the government should shut down something like this i mean seriously would you let your kid in today where we are right now would you let your kid go to a a homecoming dance where you would have i i don't know a hundred two hundred you'll fill in the blank kids doing what what you would typically do at the homecoming dances and then the parents all hanging out in the bar to me it's it's just a recipe for for disaster i mean we're we're telling people don't get together for thanksgiving or or you know and we're, we're shutting down all this stuff i'm trying to argue about how we, we don't need to do that but at the same time i see these things and it just it, it i find it to be mind-numbing 855-616-1620 that's the acunet mortgage talk and text line what do you think this is jeff wagner on wgmj
It's going to be one of those topics. Jeff, yes, I would let my high school student go. It amazes me how the big box store doesn't have anything to do with rising numbers, just bars and restaurants. Didn't you and some of the other WTMJ staff travel to Vegas not too long ago? No, I haven't been to Las Vegas in over a year. And if if I had a teenage child, I, I think at some point in time, you, you've got to because I don't want the kid to get sick. I don't want other people to get sick. And I don't want us to have to close things down. I think you have to find a balancing. And yes, having a homecoming dance at the height of COVID to me is just irresponsible. 855-616-1620. Absolutely not. I wouldn't let my kid go. What part of it don't they get? Um, This is exactly why Tony Evers said stay home. These are the people that he's talking to. Jeff, uh, let's see. Stop whining, parents. Your kids are the ones that learn from you. Um, okay, 855-616-1620. I'm just saying you got to balance it. Laura in Mequon. Laura, you're on WTMJ. Laura. Laura, Laura, Laura. Oh, sorry. I, I thought I was uh, I'm missing out on my, my action here. Um yeah, I'm, I'm a physician, Jeff, and I can tell you that I just read a, a study released by the CDC this morning from a wedding that had 55 attendees, and from those 55 attendees, there was asymptomatic transmission um, that was then taken back out into the community to a long-term care facility and a correctional institution right. and resulted in the deaths of elderly folks who didn't even attend the wedding. Right. So that's the issue that we're talking about here. And unfortunately, this age group, the young age group, is so often asymptomatic. Right. They may feel perfectly fine but take that infection and spread it to others. Well, you know, Laura, let, if, if you want evidence of that, let, let's like let's look at, at college campuses earlier this fall. Let's look at what happened in Madison. You've got all the kids that go back to school, the college kids that go back to school, and, and all of a sudden you have this huge explosion of COVID. It, it's not... I don't believe the vast majority of that came from going to the classes. It came because they were going to the parties and stuff and, you know, everybody together at the keggers. It's just this is a bad idea. And I guess I don't understand why anybody wouldn't recognize it. Absolutely right, Jeff. I mean, I have two daughters who are away at college, and we went through this with them real seriously before they left to go back. Um, That, you know, this is just not the time to be doing any of those things. Right. And none of us were surprised that right. there were outbreaks after the kids went back. And, and you're right. That's where they came from. It's not from going to class. Right. Exactly. Thanks for call. And it's not. All right. This is I mean, they're, they're talking about a, a big, full blown party. Now, I, I look, I'm I'm the guy who wants to try to figure out ways to keep restaurants and, and places open. All right. So we're not even talking about, hey, you know, you're, you're going out to dinner with or you're, you're taking your date out and the two of you are, are in a restaurant or something like that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a full blown homecoming dance. We've got the DJs. Everybody is dancing. Everybody's partying. And by the way, we're going to put the parents in a bar and try to sell them liquor as well. You, you put all that together and it sounds like fun, but it also sounds Sounds like just a dramatically bad idea, and, and can't we, can't we have some degree of of balancing? I will tell you, I have, I have friends who have teenage kids who who've gotten sick, 
And in almost all the cases, they're able to trace it to the kids going to parties. And, you know, it's like, okay, did, and then of course the question is, well, did you know they were going to the party? Well, yeah. Well, did you let them go to the party? Well, yeah. Okay. Well, well, should we be surprised if you've got 20 or 30 people? You know, closed in somebody's basement, and all you need is, like Laura was talking about, the one kid who's asymptomatic or the kid who's, what was the thing they had out in Ozaki County, um, the, the graduation party? She had some kid with like 102 fever that shows up at three graduation parties, and next thing you know, you've got 150 kids that are sick. I, I'm just... I'm just saying we need to be a little bit smarter about this. I'm the guy that is arguing against the government just shutting down everything. But it's true that I think if you look at some of the things where this is most likely to be the super spreader events, and I go back to what they're saying in Minnesota. They've got the empirical evidence that does it. It's it's the large weddings. It's the large private gatherings. It's the bars late at night. All right. I would say in an effort to try to keep everything else open, why don't we concentrate our efforts on those? And it starts with maybe mom and dad saying, you're not going to a homecoming dance at this point in time. Uh, Joey in Germantown, you're on WTMJ. Hey, hey, Jeff. Uh, great show. Thanks. Um, you know, you know, we all are trying to keep the government out of our lives and keep them from making decisions for us and keep them from treating us like children. However, when we do these kinds of activities and then the government comes around and shuts everything down, we are the ones, we look back and we're the ones to blame. That's the reality of it. You know, we think we're, you know, we have common sense, but you know what? It really doesn't look like it, and I'll leave yeah. it at that. Yeah. Well, again, thanks, that, right. Now, thanks for, and see, and this is an easy one. All right, and I understand we're, we're, we're balancing individual freedoms, and again, I, I get into this argument on a daily basis because there's a lot of you who just think that we, we, should, we should be hunkered down. The world should close. People should not be going into work. People shouldn't be doing anything, and let's do that for the next month, two months, three months, four months, whatever. And then there's the flip side, which is just let it roar. Uh, what what the heck? We'll, we'll let just God sort all this stuff out. And the, the problem with that is, and we're starting to see this now, the hospital systems end up getting overwhelmed. It's just so frustrating to me that we can't have a, a happy medium which says, yeah, let's the stuff that's not contributing in a material way to the spread of COVID, the, the, the barbershops, the hair salons that were forced to be closed for months and, and just economically destroyed the people that work there, we don't want them to have to close down again because there's no evidence that what's going on there is contributing to the spread. Okay, so on the one hand, you want to make that argument, and Governor Evers is one of these close it down, close everything down guys. He's wrong. But the flip side of this is, okay, let's just not have any restrictions at all. And I guess my point here is whether or not it's government that comes in and and makes these decisions, whether or not it's government that does it, from the perspective of mom and dad, who in their right mind, I mean, seriously, who in their right mind would let their high school sophomore go to a, a dance with I don't know, in in some hall with, you know, 200 or 300 other people. I mean, at this point in time where you're going to be dancing and when you're going to be close, I mean, th- there's times to do it. Look, I get that this is a time between virtual learning and sports being canceled and all this stuff. I understand that this is, it, it just sucks to be a kid right now. I mean, you know, you're losing out on a lot of the stuff that you might enjoy about high school. I, I appreciate all that, but we're, we're going to get through it. But we are going to get through it faster if people use a little bit of common sense. Just saying.
Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Give you an example of this. My um, stepdaughter, I have two stepdaughters, Amy and Jenny, and uh, Jenny and her husband, Darren, every year, they have a great party around Thanksgiving. It's actually, it's always held the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. They call it an old-fashioned Thanksgiving. And... Um, what it is is people drink old fashions, you know. And 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 Darren, he, he's a great mixologist, and they have all sorts of different recipes for old fashions. And, and what happens is people from uh, lots of their friends, and you know, I'm I'm on the guest list now, and people from the neighborhood and stuff. And and it's it's a regular thing. And I I bet you, gosh, I don't know, fifty, sixty, maybe more people than that. They, people pile in from all over, and and actually they have kind of a last man standing or last woman standing thing that right when the party breaks up at one or two or three in the morning or wherever and i'm trust me i'm long gone by then they take a picture of all the 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 diehards and it it just it's a fun thing that they have been doing for years they look forward to it attendees look forward to it heck i've only been going for a few years i look forward to it it's a lot of fun they canceled it this year They, they were trying to figure out all sorts of different ways that you could maybe work make it work and and very quickly they came to the realization that okay Having a whole bunch of people over for a party the night before Thanksgiving where we're going to be drinking old fashions and we're all going to be in the house because it's going to be cold, that's probably not the best idea. You know, they explored the idea of do we get a tent? Do we, you know, do we, do we maybe do it in a garage or something like that? But the end, at the end of the day, for this year, it just wasn't a good idea. And I guess, I mean, I, I applaud them for, for that. And, and look, I, th- does that guarantee that, you know, nobody is going to, that might have attended the party is going to get COVID at some point in time in the future? Of course not. I mean, I, I understand this is spreading and people are going to have it and people are going to have to deal with it. I, I appreciate all that. I'm just saying that if we're going to get through this and we're going to get through this by resisting government's efforts to shut everything down, devastate the economy and, you know, cause all the other problems that happened as a result of the last shutdown. If we're going to do that, we, we have to have a, a balancing. We have to recognize that there's some behaviors which are riskier than others and that let's concentrate on trying to rein in some of the riskier behaviors. And again, regardless of whether or not you think the government should be passing these rules, if I'm a parent and my kid says, I'm going to go to a homecoming dance and there's going to be a couple hundred of us, my answer is going to be, okay, not right now, you're, you're not. Hopefully, you know, hopefully we're going to have a vaccine soon and, and hopefully you can enjoy your prom in the spring, but homecoming right now, not a good idea. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Our latest WTMJ Cares initiative, Pass the Turkey, and I think if you've been listening to the station over the last week or so, you know all about this. We are partnering with the Hunger Task Force to make people's thanksgivings a little bit brighter and you can help us do that and i've said this over the years i've been doing a radio show full or part-time um on wtmj for this is the 23rd plus year of that and been in the market for 25 or 26 years and i'm always amazed at the 
at your generosity on things like this. And here, here's the way it works. For $15, you can donate a, a turkey that's going to go to somebody in some family in need so their Thanksgiving will be a little bit brighter. We do have a contest element to this. This is kind of fun. So if you go to WTMJ.com, and you'll, you'll see it. It says Pass the Turkey, and you can scroll down, and there's the various shows, including me right in the middle there, and you can click on one for the shows, click on the Wagner Show, for example, and, and you can make arrangements to donate a turkey, one turkey, three turkeys, five turkeys, ten turkeys, a hundred turkeys, whatever, and it's kind of a competition, I guess, between the, the different uh, hosts, so it all goes to a very good cause. I was telling this story yesterday, I was so blown away, because a dear friend of mine who actually just got out of the hospital earlier this week after being hospitalized for a couple days with COVID. Um, she, she heard us talking about this, and one of the very first things she did when she got out of the hospital is she went on the website, went down, and, and, and donated some turkeys. And I thought, how cool is that? Yesterday, my, my dear friend Colleen, who was the one who um, just got back to Wisconsin a little while ago after riding out the hurricane in, in Gulf Shores. You know, she heard us talking about it, and she called up and said, I, I donated some turkeys. So, all right, if if my friends who are getting out of the hospital with COVID can take some time to donate turkeys, or my friends who are riding out hurricanes in, in Gulf Shores can take time to donate turkeys, well, we, we can all take time to donate some turkeys. So, um, again, it's the Pass the Turkey, um, WTMJ Cares. Go to WTMJ.com, scroll down, and... Uh, you can donate for your favorite shows and do it for the Wagner Show and get the numbers up. That's it's 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 a really it's a wonderful cause. And bottom line is it's sort of a fun way to try to inspire people to contribute to a very good cause. Not that not that you need any help in in being inspired to contribute to a very worthwhile cause. And I understand. Um, 2020 is a unique year on so many different levels, and the need is, it's always great, but it's particularly great um, now. So check it out. Actually, the liner I'm supposed to read says, Melissa Barkley and WTMJ are teaming up with the Hunger Task Force to help make a difference for families in need this holiday season, and we're also going to have a little fun along the way. Your favorite WTMJ shows will be competing to see who can help donate the most Thanksgiving turkeys to families in needs. It's WTMJ Cares Past the Turkey. Go to WTMJ.com to donate and don't forget to pick your favorite WTMJ show WTMJ cares powered by Watry Industries and Premier Aluminum. All right. When we first had the government ordered shutdowns like in Wisconsin the, the safer at home the sort of sledgehammer approach that we're going to just shut down everything but essential stores but of course we're, we we don't really have a good definition of what essential is so Walmart can stay open to sell watches but the local jewelry store that sells watches can't you know that that, that whole approach but one of the things that happened is people being people we ran out and there were shortages because people started hoarding things. You remember that? Remember back in like in March and April, we would do topics where you could not find toilet paper in the stores because people were running out and people were buying, I don't know, all the toilet paper that they could find on the shelves, more toilet paper that they could use in a year or two years, but they wanted to have it because, gee, I don't know that the world is going to end and you want to make sure you've got toilet paper. Same thing was true with a variety of other things, including bottled water, um, hand wipes and things like that, and all sorts of other types of um uh, foodstuffs, like a lot of the box foods, and then paper towels and things of the like. All right, since then, 
the the pressure on those type of products has, has by and large it, it's ended i'm not saying that there there's still a problem trying to find wipes you know the sanitary wipes and things like that but most times if you went into a grocery store you, you're like a big box retailer or costco walmart whatever you'd be able to find you know toilet paper there there wasn't there wasn't a shortage of toilet paper there wasn't a shortage of paper towels and things of the like that's starting to change again Kroger, um, they're pick and save out here. They're the nation's largest grocer and Publix supermarkets. Um, Publix is, if you've, if you've been to Florida, you know Publix. Publix is just an enormous chain itself in the Southeast. They have had to reinstate limits on toilet paper, paper towels, um, also limits on hand soap, disinfected wipes, and they're looking at cutting back on the amount of other sorts of things that people can buy. All right, our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It, it appears that because you know COVID numbers are spiking and because there's at least talk of maybe we're going to try to do another lockdown or, or something like that, people are already going out and starting to try to hoard. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are you afraid that we're going to run out of things? Are are you afraid that you need to go and and build up that stockpile so you've got the, the two years' worth of toilet paper that's sitting in your basement? Or is by doing this... Are we making it worse for everybody and contributing to a general panic? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I try to be the voice of reason on these things, and I, my wife will kid around. I, I, I always believe that there should be kind of a backup thing. So, you know, we have plenty of batteries around the house. We have plenty of light bulbs around the house. Yes, we, we've got, we've got plenty of toilet paper, but I, I don't have a two-year supply of toilet paper. I guess I'm confident that the world is, in fact, not going to end and that I I don't need to have that two-year supply of toilet paper. But obviously, not everybody is taking that approach. 855-616-1620, are you starting to, I don't know, stock up, hoard, whatever word you want to use? We discuss in just a moment. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Mary in Greenfield. Hi, Mary. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I am well, thank you. Okay, don't tell me you're becoming a hoarder. No, I'm not a hoarder. I don't feel like I'm hoarding because I don't, like, buy... Even when this all started, we always we had, like, always, like, four or five packs in the house. But um, I just feel that with... Everything that's going on in this world right now, and I'm, I don't think I'm hoarding it because, like I when I like I said, when I go to the store, I buy my limit. Like, yeah. like Target lets you have one, so I get one packet, and I don't do it every week or anything like that. Right. But I figured out how much toilet paper my husband and I would need, and I'm in our late sixties until the age of eighty, <laughs> and that's what I'm trying to reach my goal at. Because so, so you're I, you're, you're I, trying I to build before, up a ten year supply of toilet paper in your house. Yes, okay. at least. <laughs> Where do you put it? I'm, this, I'm just curious. Now, I have bedroom, I have a huge basement, so I can stack bedroom. it. Okay, you, you, so your, your your spare bedroom is full of toilet paper. Yep, <laughs> oh, and I'm not done. But you know, I figured I I thought about this, and I know it sounds nuts, but you know, I I 
with Biden becoming, and this is, I felt this way before I felt, well, if Biden becomes president and all those people, all the Democrats get in control, we may go to a socialist co- a country. And every time I hear about Venezuela and these people can't get toilet paper, that's what, <laughs> that's what possessed me to do it. Well, Mary, I... I it was never <laughs> like this before. Well, I, 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 I thanks you, Mary. You, you, this does not happen to me often. You have rendered me speechless. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, if a 10-year supply of toilet paper, I don't... I don't know what a ten-year supply of toilet. Now, see, I, I admit we we've got we got a bunch of toilet paper because my wife will go to Costco and she'll buy those, those big packs. But I, I've got this huge, I've got a huge basement, and so you know, ten-year supply, a ten-year supply of toilet. Gru, do you want to say something about this? I mean, it's important to have goals, uh, really, to to just try to work up to that ten-year supply. But even if you if you have an eight-year supply, I think that's. That's enough. I, you don't need the extra two. I, I just I appreciate it. I'm trying to think. Okay, where, where do you put all all this? And she was, uh, she, it's in the spare bedroom. I guess you don't have guests. And so I, I I appreciate that. But wow. Um, okay, Jessica sends me an email. Jeff. Okay. Um, just in case, I bought, I bought a case of wine last night. Okay. Well, all right. See, I I, I understand that, and it's it's also it's not like she's saying she bought. 15 cases of wine or 20 cases where she bought a case of wine. Um, Jeff, my mom is 60, and when the pandemic first started, she went to 10 stores one weekend just for toilet paper and sanitizing wipes. I had to tell her she was part of the problem with the panic shopping. Yeah, that, that's it. And, I, and th- there's always been... I think people are using the sanitary wipes now more than they did. So that that there's always been kind of a little bit of a shortage of that. But all the other stuff... Um, Wow. Um, Jeff, I've always bought in bulk, even before COVID-19. Okay, well, that's uh, buying in bulk is not what what they're talking about. What they're talking about is the stuff that happened like last spring. It wasn't this question of buying in bulk. It was, all right, I'm, I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy a two-year supply of, of whatever. I mean, it's one thing to buy in bulk. It's another thing to just, I'm, I'm going to just buy all this stuff to store it because I'm afraid that I might not be able to get to the... Um, stores. Jeff, uh, last year when the lockdown happened, we were in Costa Rica and we were getting all this information about shortage of toilet paper and supplies. So before we left our hotel, I made everyone put two rolls of toilet paper in their suitcase. So at least when we got home, we knew we had some toilet paper. Okay. Well, again, I, I get that. That's that's two rolls. Jeff, I always have a supply of things we use, including toilet paper, paper backup, loaf of bread in the freezer, canned soup, etc., but not two years worth. Well, and see, and again, I, I, I get it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm the be prepared guy. I'm the be prepared Boy Scout guy. And so that's kind of my philosophy about the stuff too. You, you want to be prepared and you want to, Again, you don't want to run out of stuff. So that's why I have light bulbs and I have batteries and I, I have those sorts of things. And we always have, you know, bottled water and stuff like that. But I, I guess I haven't reached a point where I'm afraid that what's going to happen is we're ever going to get to a point where for a prolonged period of time, I'm not going to be able to get stuff. And it didn't happen last spring. And if it didn't happen last spring, I guess I, I don't think it's going to happen here, um, Jeff, how much is enough in uncertainty? Where's the line between hoarding and getting a little extra just in case? Well, I would say to that, it's kind of like they say about obscenity. It's tough to define, but I, I know it when I see it. And I, I, again, I, I, I don't know, buying that extra, you know, 16 pack of toilet paper so you have it there so you don't have to go out anytime soon is fine. 
buying eight 16 packs of toilet paper. I kind of wonder about that. And of course, the problem is it, it's just um, the, the problem is, again, when everybody goes out, and that, that's what contributes to the shortage, and this what contributes to the panic. That's part of what was happening last spring. It wasn't necessarily that there was a shortage in the supply chain. It was that there was, that like, the, the toilet paper would come in, and the first people in the store would run, and they'd buy five times more toilet paper than they needed, and then the stores, the shelves would be empty, and that contributed to having everybody else get panicked about this. Jeff, my sister-in-law witnessed the physical, physical fistic cuffs at a Sam's Club in Rochester, Minnesota, over toilet paper last week. All right, a number of people are responding. They like um, my emailer's idea about buying the case of wine. Now, see, that's that's always very good. Okay, take a quick break. Back with more in just a minute. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ Group, producing the show today and always. Who cuts your hair? Do you have a... Uh, Kaylee does. Oh, you're, so you're Mrs. Group cuts your hair. Okay. Yep, got that's it. right. See, I'm just... I, I've, I've never felt comfortable enough with any woman I've been with, like, trust them with, like, really sharp objects close to my head. I don't know exactly why that is. No. I, I got her started really early. I want to say maybe months into our relationship. <laughs> I was like, start cutting the hair. And then uh, she showed an openness to it, and now ever since I haven't gotten my hair cut from anybody else in three plus years. Okay, so when 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 you first started dating within a month or two, that 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 was the thing you talked her into cutting your hair. Well, one of a, a one of our mutual friends had she would cut my hair, and then she showed Kaylee how to cut my hair, and now Kaylee carries the baton. Well, there you go. Oh, okay. I, I all right. I love that uh, I, again. I. I I go back to what I said before. I, I just, you know, it, it's kind of like there's some things I, I like leave up to the professionals and all. Although I tell you, during that last uh, that last shutdown, when I, I was starting to look like I looked in the mid seventies, which wasn't a great look as, as your hair got older. Now, now I guess the, the one good thing is that I still have like lots of hair that, that grows long, but it was not at this at my age. But it still was not a good look. Anyways, I, I bring this up because the the, the old fashioned. Barbers, it, it's becoming kind of a, a lost art, and I I bring this up because there was a there was a, a local legend who who passed away within the last couple days. If you have ever been to downtown Cedarburg, and and it's just it's a wonderful you know just a, a wonderful little community. I mean, it's kind of a I, I don't want to be naive about it, but it, it kind of looks like you know what you would have imagined you know Norman Rockwell places to be in, in downtown Cedarburg. There has been a barber shop on, on that main street in in Cedarburg. There has been a, a barber shop there since 1886, and it's continuously been a, a barber shop. And um, since 1975, well, starting in 1975, a guy named Vic Kraus, um, he. He he took over the barbershop, owned it, and, and ran it, and he had worked there since 1975. I think he sold it a couple years ago, but continued to work as a barber. And Vic is like a Cedarburg legend, or, or was a Cedarburg legend. And a couple of the guys I play golf with on Sundays, I, I know they, they were very close with him, and they would play golf with him and stuff. I only met him once or twice. But, you know, everybody talked about Vic's barbershop, and even after he 
even after he sold it, you know, when it, when he sold it about five years ago and continued working there, everybody just referred to it. This is this is Vic's Barbershop. And it was one of these classic sort of things. And I, I bring this up because he got a nice write up in the local paper. Uh, they describe him as a Cedarburg legend who was a barber in the community for 40 years, um, passed away. Uh, about a week or so ago, again, he was um, he was in his 80s, and they they say the cause of death was was COVID. So apparently, he, he got sick, and um, you know, born in 1946. So um, yeah, th- it's but but it's one of those sort of situations where you know everybody just if you were if you had gotten your haircut in Cedarburg any time you know any time over the course of the last you know 30 or 40 years chances are at one point in time or another you you probably went into Vic's barbershop and um again great guy beloved in the community and and passed away again much too soon it, it got me thinking about how um one of one of the guys for years and years when I was, you know, working, practicing law downtown and stuff, um, my, my barber was a guy named Gene who um, ran a place called the Mug and Brush, which was first it was in the 411 building and then they moved it down to the M&I building and, and ultimately he ended up um, retiring. But And he, he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, but just I, I loved these old style barber shops where you, you kind of go in and then they've got the, the, the magazines that, you know, the people magazines from about four or five, six years ago. And you sit there and you have the conversations and stuff. I just always used to love that. And that's, I, I they, they are, they are in fact disappearing. There, there's just no question about it. I mean, I think more and more people are either doing what my producer does and, you know, finding family members to cut their hair or, you know, going to the stylists and things like that. Um, but whenever, Whenever I find or hear about one of these old school barbers and the barber shops that have been part of the community and, you know, hear about how the, the barber passed away or whatever, I, I always know that that's a loss to the community. And I think everybody in Cedarburg probably recognizes that uh, Vic the barber, his his passing, his passing marks the end of an era. Okay, when we come back, it's the 2 o'clock hour of the Friday program. We have a number of things on the agenda leading up to Pop Culture Corner at 2.30. Do not go anywhere. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. All right, let's once again go where angels fear to tread. I, as, as I've said before, there, there's really, when it comes to COVID-19 and the pandemic, there's there, there's people that are on either pole, and you know who you are. There's people who think we just need to shut down the state. We need to shut down the country. We need to close businesses, and we need to say, okay, we're going to just hunker down for the next four weeks or eight weeks or 12 weeks or 16 weeks or, or whatever, and if it causes economic damage and you lose your job, too bad. You know, We're sorry, but that's the reality, and if you can't figure out you know, if your job is gone and you don't have a job to come back to, too bad. We're, we're sorry. I don't think that that's a realistic or a rational way to approach things. The flip side, of course, is that the people who, again, and let, let's just, you know, what the heck, everybody's going to get sick. So what do we care if people get sick and we overwhelm the hospital system? So let's go out and do irresponsible stuff. I, I think there's there's a middle ground on this. Now, I am not somebody who advocates locking stuff down. I don't think that worked. I don't think it's sustainable. And I think the consequences of locking stuff down is just devastating. But having said that, that, that still means that you got to be smart. That's why we were talking the last hour about the the 
this this bar slash restaurant that wants to have a homecoming dance for a couple hundred kids from Union Grove. I'm going, really? I mean, who, who would think that that would be a good idea? In the city of Milwaukee, they have set forth rules under which if, if bar owners or restaurant owners submit various plans, you know, safety plans, and they submit them to the health department and the health department signs off on them, you know, they, they, they can stay open. And, you know, they're not allowed to operate at full capacity, but, but there's, there's enough freedom there to perhaps, as long as the demand is there, allow these restaurants to, to make a living. All right. That, that's, that's it. But you have to have the programs. You have to have the plans in place. The problem is that some people either put in the plans or they open without the plans and they don't follow the rules. They, they, they let too many people in. Uh, the rules require people be seated. You know, you can't be just kind of standing, you know, bellying, bellying up to the bar. They, they've got these different rules that some people don't like. But nevertheless, it's kind of a balancing between, right, shutting down and just opening and letting it just all rip. So they've got these different programs. And again, I, I actually, I give Tom Barrett some credit for this, and you can mark the tape on that, because when when the governor tried to issue his more restrictive orders, Milwaukee said, no, we're, we've got our plan in place, and we're, we're not going to change it, at least not change it for the moment. The problem, though, is what happens when people, when businesses don't comply. You know, they, they say they're going to do something, but they end up not following the rules. Now, up until now, the maximum fine, the fine that you could get for failing to follow the rules as a business was 500 bucks. The problem with that is that for some businesses, that, that, that $500 was a risk worth taking. You know, it, it's like, okay, well, we can make a lot more money by not following the rules and having more people in so we're willing to take the risk that we're not going to get busted. And even if we do get busted, it's going to be 500 bucks. It's kind of like with, with parking. If the fine for parking is 10 bucks, all right, maybe you're going to be inclined to say, okay, I'm going to park here and I'm going to take the risk. If the fine for illegal parking is 250 bucks, you know, chances are you're, you're probably not going to take that risk. Uh, so those are the different things. So anyhow, what the Common Council did yesterday, recognizing that they didn't think the $500 fine was going to be enough of a deterrent, what they did is they, they upped it. So now the penalty for violating health department orders um, has been increased. It's gone from 500 bucks to between 500 bucks and 5,000 bucks. And um, apparently that, that there's a maximum of, of $20,000 if you continue to violate the rules over and over again. But, but they've jacked up the amount of the fine for failing to comply. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, let, let us discuss this. Is, is this unreasonable? Because obviously, you know, if, if you're, for example, a, a restaurant or a bar owner, 500 bucks, well, maybe you can make more than that, and so it's worth the risk. 5,000 bucks, a completely different story. On the other hand, this gives a lot of power to the health inspectors, um, and we, we know in the city of Milwaukee, some of the people that are responsible for enforcing stuff haven't always used the best judgment, and I'm thinking about the parking checkers now, but th- this idea that you can be fined up to $5,000 if you violate the health department rules, 
I have to tell you, as long as they don't do it capriciously, and I admit that that's a pretty big if, but I think if we're going to stay open, if we're not going to close stuff down, we need people to play by the rules. And if you've got businesses that are supposed to have 30 people in their business and they decide they're going to allow 60, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be too terribly sympathetic if they get nailed with a fine. We have to play by the rules or else our masters in Madison are going to try to figure out a way to shut everything down. And I think that would be horrible. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Guess bottom line is, at least on its surface, I don't have a problem for with upping the fines for non-compliance with the health department rules. Now, if, again, if it turns out that they're being enforced in an arbitrary or capricious or unfair way, that, that might be a different story. But in general, I don't have a problem with the greater fines. Do you? We discuss. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, enforcement is a matter of perception. They aren't making, and this would be the restaurants and bars, aren't making enough to staff more people to do a headcount, period. Plus, you put those employees into a position of danger in trying to enforce something. I, I'm sorry, I, I don't I don't agree. That's if If the rules are... That if you're going to be able to reopen, and we all want the places to reopen, to me that that's a cost of, of doing business. And if, if we say, okay, you're going to be able to reopen, but you, you've got to limit yourself to 50% capacity. And if that means you can have 50 people in the place and you have 100, I, I'm sorry, you, you've got to understand those are the rules that you play by. And if it turns out that from an economic perspective, you, you can't that's a cost of business that you can't afford. Gee, I, I, I can't open up with only 50 people. Um, I have to allow 100 in to make money. I understand that. It's unfortunate, but maybe then you need to stay closed. I, that's that that's the thing. If, if the rules are in place for this, and this is what we're doing as an alternative to forcing you to stay closed, which is, I think, that, that we got to avoid at all costs, you, you, you can't just ignore the rules and not expect there to be some consequence. Okay, let's talk to Steve in Wauwatosa. Hi, Steve. You're in WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I, ha- I haven't drank in a couple of years now, but um, the places that I used to go to, I still see my friends occasionally, and it's wall-to-wall. They're just jammed. Uh, no masks. Um, I guess my point is I don't believe that the city even has the enforcement personnel to even you know check on these places what do they have four or five inspectors in the entire city well it's definitely going to be i mean that's always been an issue it's it's definitely going to be catch as catch can but i guess okay so here would be my question okay tonight's friday night if you've got if Mm -hmm. they're if they're doing random inspections and somebody drives by steve's bar and grill you know in in milwaukee Mm -hmm. and sees all these people lined up outside the place and the parking lot's jammed and they go in and they find that it's jammed way over capacity. I mean, would you have a problem with them giving a ticket? I, 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 gr- I grant you it's going to be tough to enforce it all around. But if they see examples where people are screwing up, is there a problem? Nope. The higher, the better. Yeah. 5000 should be more than that. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for calling. And again, I guess that's that's the that's the thing. It it's it, Is it unfair to single out you know, certain businesses like bars and restaurants. And, and I understand that argument, and I, in some ways I don't disagree. But again, I, I keep going back to how, how we need to be smart about this. I don't think the governor's approach has been smart. I, I think it's just been this scattershot, let's close everything down. 
I don't think that makes sense. But I do think that we need to try to figure out where is it that, that COVID is most likely to spread. And, and, and we're starting to know that. If you were listening yesterday and early in the program, I, the, the governor of Minnesota said, it's Minnesota, but I, I bet you it's probably pretty the same. They say, you know, we find that 70% of our COVID cases, they originated in bars and restaurants after 9 o'clock at night because people were drinking and they kind of, you know, you know, they just tended to forget about some of the other social norms after they've been drinking or like large gatherings like weddings or funerals or large private parties. Okay, so that that at least makes sense to me. So if we understand that that's where a lot of the cases are coming, then I think it's reasonable to say to these bars and restaurants, hey, we have these rules in place and we expect you to follow them. And if you don't follow them, there, there's going to be some pretty nasty penalties. Is it fair to single them out? No, but at least so far, I'm not seeing, at least nobody's saying that you're getting widespread um, examples of, of COVID being spread by people going to the grocery store or the hardware store or the small jewelry store. It, it's it, it's going on one of the things are bars and restaurants, and it's because of alcohol. It makes sense to me. And if that turns out to be the case, it's why you have to require the bars and restaurants to do some extra stuff. Allison in Brown Deer. Allison, you're in WTMJ. Well, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Um, I believe that the responsibility is for everybody. So if the businesses can't comply, they need to be fined, and I believe it should be larger than 5000 And the people that can't comply as they walk into that business should be given a fine of maybe 500 So maybe then the people would think to themselves, oh, before I walk in here, it's, not, it's too crowded. I really shouldn't come in. Yeah, I should go down the street or whatever. Well, there needs to be, I mean, thanks to call out, there There needs to be, I mean, I think there needs to be some teeth in, in the law. And, and I, I there, to try to get us through this without having to shut everything down. Now, the problem with trying to go after individuals who are in the tavern, et cetera, you know, that, that, that's a, there's a practical matter. You get the lawyer and the lawyer says, well, I, and you, you say, the argument is, well, I, I didn't know how many people were allowed to be there. It's not my responsibility. I, how did I know that the bar, you know, wasn't allowed to have us all in there? And of course, the more difficult thing too with bars and restaurants is you, you know, you, you can't have your mask on, or at least if, if you're eating or drinking, you know, your mask is going to be down. So it's a different sort of situation. But I guess I, I the, the bottom line is I think we have to find this balancing act, and I think we have to get people on board because I'm trying to find ways to stop the government from shutting us all down. But that does mean that I, I think you have to recognize that there's going to be some consequences for not following some of the common sense rules. John in Sheboygan. Hi, John. You're on WTMJ. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. The way the mask, I'm fine with a higher fine uh, for establishments if they're breaking the rules. But I think the mask suggestion, because I, it's not a mandate, and the way it's been written in you know, people, please wear a mask, and if somebody's not wearing a mask, you can't say anything to them, and then you're wrong if you say something to them. It can have so much stronger teeth in put a mask on and have both sides of the aisle, you know, so we don't have to shut down and say, okay, if you're in somewhere, you have to wear a mask, hands down, and if you don't, they, they have the right to say, no, I don't have to serve you, because our mask suggestion is just so weak that that is one place we can start 
to well, not have everything shut down. Well, well, John, here, here, here's what I would say to that. And I just, I, I promised myself today on Friday, I, I wasn't going to get sucked into the mask thing because we, we've talked about it a lot over the course of the week. And I know, I know there are people out there who disagree with me about this. I, I continue to believe that voluntary mass compliance is a lot higher than, than people think. I mean, I, I understand because it got politicized and because we're, we're looking for magic bullets to this COVID problem, where I don't know that there is a magic bullet. I, I understand that there's people out there that think, oh, there's huge parts of the state that there are, or nobody wears masks at all. And, and I always tell the story that at least in, in the places I go, now, admittedly, I live in southeastern Wisconsin. I, I it I can't tell you the last time that I walked into a a, a, a retail store and, and didn't see somebody wearing a mask. And, and the the one time in the last couple of weeks I've done that, I remember that there was some employee who said, "Sir, you need a not to me, but to said, "Sir, you need a mask." And they gave the guy a mask and he put it on. Now, I, I understand that there might be other, and I'm exempting, of course, bars and restaurants because that's a different sort of thing because you can't eat and drink while you're wearing a mask, but. I personally believe that mask usage is a lot higher. There's a big uh, article, a medical study that came out in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week that that said, yeah, that that, that that's it. It it may be, uh, it may be seventy percent. It may be eighty percent. I I don't know, but I mean, I, I'm I'm just telling you. I would say nine out of the ten times that I am out in public in an inside place, not outside. That's a little bit of a different story. But at least inside, I, I see people wearing masks. So I think there is a lot more compliance than than people would would say. But but at the same time, I mean, I, I do acknowledge that there's the controversy about masks and things of, of the like. Uh, to me, I just lump it in the category of it, it, it can't hurt. And certainly if the stores, I think every store and business has a right to require that. And if, if that's the condition for going in the store, you put on the mask or, you know, you find a, a different store that doesn't require it. But I think at least around here, pretty much every store does, in fact, require it. When we come back, we'll find out what John and Melissa have on their minds. Please stick around.